from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. They literally put a chokehold on any ideas of building a railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. They were even equipping their own ferry boats, their own cargo ferry boats, with rail. They had their own rail docking stations on either side of the river, and they would move locomotives and cargo cars via boat. As the, this, this ultra, ultra high speed um, rail starts to take shape, going to happen sooner or later, get out in front of it. Um, why did St. Louis abandon Union Station? I'm Sarah Fenske. Perhaps you've heard about the latest attempt to bring the loop trolley back from death. That effort would rest on a $1.26 million federal grant. The East-West Gateway Council of Governments is deciding whether to support the investment. But whatever your feelings about the loop trolley, you can't deny St. Louis's long history of transit on the tracks. That history is the subject of Molly Butterworth's fascinating new book. It's called Trains and Trolleys, Railroads and Streetcars in St. Louis. And she joins us today to discuss discuss it. Molly Butterworth, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So your book contains so much interesting history. What made you set out to explore railroads and streetcars? The answer to that actually has two parts. Um, Number one, I was so, so fortunate to be hired as the curator at the Museum of Transportation here in St. Louis back in 1997, fresh out of graduate school for We History Geeks. Wasn't sure, you know, what kind of museum I'd be and, you know, would they even want, you know, a real into history read research kind of person like me. I was so fortunate as a lover of all forms of transportation to wind up at the museum that I think houses the best collection of railroad and streetcar history in North America. Hmm. So that uh, really, really opened my eyes to this wonderful world and especially to the incredibly significant role that St. Louis played in it not only in operations, but in manufacturing, too, for um, railroad service and interurbans. Secondly, uh, to be quite honest, uh, when Josh Stevens, the owner of Reedy Press, came to me and said, hey, what would you think about working on a book covering St. Louis's railroad and streetcar heritage? I said, yep, count me in. I'm he all brought over this that. to you. He brought it to me. And uh, I, having previously worked with Tom Eisel on a book covering St. Louis's incredible, equally incredible automotive heritage, I knew Reedy Press, great, great local publishers, really into the incredible history of the Gateway City. I knew it was a great opportunity, and uh, having back in the day been a kind of a little mini railroader myself, working in a museum where I got to run locomotives and operate the switchyard and preserve incredible pieces of history, I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm hopping on this one right away. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he chose the perfect person for this book. There's so much history in here. And I want to go back to the very early days of rail being in St. Louis and, and heading out from St. Louis to other points in the country. And this is kind of a fraught topic for St. Louis. I think, you know, lore has it that this is really when the city's decline began, when the Transcontinental Railroad opted for a more northern route And St. Louis was kind of left in the dust. But what was interesting to read in your book is that this was not for a lack of trying on St. Louis's part. Is it fair to say that the city understood pretty early on rail was a big deal? St. Louis wanted in on this. 
I think you're absolutely correct. The local businessmen across the city in general knew this could be a fantastic boondoggle for the area if it could be included on the Transcontinental Railroad, linking the Atlantic Ocean with the Pacific via rail. I am fortunate to, um, I'm an employee of St. Louis County Parks. I work at Faust Park, and it's a great historic village. And, of course, the um, oldest standing governor's mansion in the state of Missouri, Thornhill, uh, built by and occupied by Governor Frederick Bates. His brother, Edward, was a very significant local politician and later went on to become um, President Lincoln's attorney general during his first term. Mr. Bates, that Mr. Edward Bates, knew right away St. Louis needed to be on this Transcontinental Railroad. Mm -hmm. And he attended a convention in 1847 in Chicago, really, really plugged how important St. Louis, the inclusion of this great river city, would be in that Transcontinental Railroad. And he sold that story hard. It was bought. Unfortunately, the ferry boat companies here in St. Louis had such a stranglehold over the commercial cargo moving across the Mississippi River. We waited too long to build a certain bridge, and Hmm. uh, that put St. Louis number two behind Chicago right away. So you trace this back to how long it took to get that Eads Bridge up and running. I don't want to point all my fingers at the Wiggins Ferry Company. I'll point (laughs) nine of my ten. (laughs) Wiggins Ferry Company. But they wisely, the owners and investors in Wiggins, had ingratiated themselves so well into the local politics that they literally put a chokehold on any ideas of building a railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. They were even equipping their own ferry boats, their own cargo ferry boats with rail. They had their own rail docking stations on either side of the river, and they would move locomotives and cargo cars via boat. So, Which is just crazy to think of. Exactly. Certainly not... uh, economically or ecologically feasible or um, preferred, but it was good for the uh, check holders for the Wiggins Ferry Company. So, And so um, the, the Mississippi ended up being bridged up in Rock Island, Illinois. I mean, that was kind of what made the big difference there is that's then the, the, that ferry, that track had a huge head start in terms of heading west. You are absolutely right. That opened Chicago to the west. We had a great opening already thanks to the Pacific Railroad to the west. It was our traffic coming from the east. Chicago didn't have that worry because they didn't have, as we have, a river on their eastern side. Uh, Thanks to the Rock Island, a great old railroad, which eventually served St. Louis, uh, Chicago again. It's part of that big head start they got on us, and they still hold on us. I wonder, as a history geek and a a rail fan, how things might be different today had it not been for those darn ferry companies. (laughs) Those darn ferry companies. I'm glad we have an enemy that we can pin our decline on. Um, You also tell a fascinating story in here. This did not help St. Louis in its quest to get railroads uh, heading west out of town up and running. And this was a catastrophic accident that happened in November of 1855. What happened there? The Pacific Railroad, our first railroad here in St. Louis, named the Pacific because obviously reaching the Pacific Ocean was the goal, had uh, already been engineering, thanks to its lead engineer, James Kirkwood, for whom Kirkwood, of course, is named, um, engineering and track laying had already built from St. Louis, downtown St. Louis, out to Jefferson City. And they wanted to impress important people here in St. Louis, i.e. politicians, major business owners, and so forth, with a grand and glorious passenger excursion from downtown out to Jefferson City. Unfortunately, the river over the, I'm sorry, the bridge over the Gasconade River just 
a bit south of where the Gasconade meets the Missouri River. The bridge built there was built very hastily, not entirely according to drawings and it's specs. A bad and so idea forth. with bridges. Exactly. And it was quote unquote tested just a couple of days before the big passenger excursion, but it was not tested at speed nor with equipment of the same weight, even though the uh, you know the guys on the ground, the engineers and so forth said, Oh yeah, it weighs about the same because we sent a couple of ore cars over it and everything, the weights weren't exact. And when you throw in the factor of speed, the higher speeds of a passenger train, certainly back then, those things led that bridge to collapse as soon as the steam locomotive and the first three cars of that excursion train hit it. So it went down, unfortunately, 47 people ranging from local politicians, like I mentioned, to Kate Chopin's father died in that wreck. So very and, sad. And was that a huge setback for that Pacific Railroad Company? It was a big setback, especially in the public eyes. There had been some question about, you know, are we really going to be the one? What about getting across the river? How is this going to work? How is this going to affect us in terms of travel? the prices we pay for goods at the stores and so forth. So that certainly threw a big question mark into the whole process, everything from how well is this being built? Is it really being engineered very well? What's mm -hmm. going to happen with this? So overall, this story was really fascinating to me because as you explained in just really interesting detail, it wasn't like there was one railroad effort. There were all these like groups of capitalists taking on these pieces of track and trying to outmaneuver each other and build empires. What is one railroad company whose work in the area really stands out to you as, as being a story you were just really interested in? It's hard for me to not choose the Pacific Railroad, eventually becoming the Missouri Pacific, to answer that question because they were here first. They had already surveyed so many areas and so many lines that went on to become the rail beds for other um, Class 1 competitors, like the St. Louis Iron Mountain and Southern, the Frisco Railroad, and so forth. So it's when you're first out of the gate, you really do kind of get the win as far as the power, looking over everything. But if your checkbook's not quite big enough to support all that, you know, seeking, finding, documentation, drawing, then you're best off to sell those avenues to others to increase your own capital to build your real main line, which is exactly what the Pacific Layer Missouri Pacific Railroad did. Hmm. So there's different paths to riches. One is finishing the railroad. The other is selling off what you've managed to assemble. Absolutely. And as I mentioned in the book uh, related to the Missouri Pacific and other railroads here, another path to riches laid out very well by Jay Gould is to buy the fledgling railroads and build your own railroad empire. And his work certainly, his purchases certainly affected this area too. So, We're talking today to Molly Butterworth. She is the author, author of Trains and Trolleys, Railroads and Streetcars in St. Louis. So much interesting local history just packed into this book. The photos alone are worth the price of this book. You found just some amazing photos. And if people are listening to this conversation and have a question about rail, the history of it or the history of streetcars in St. Louis, we have the expert right here at the table. I'm going to open the phone lines. We're at 314-382-8255. Five. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. And Molly, in this book, I don't want to um, get so mired in talking about all the railroads that I forget about the streetcars. When did streetcars first come to town? 
streetcars pulled by pulled by mules or horses, not the electric streetcars we all came to know and love later, um, were actually introduced into operation here in St. Louis in the 1840s. Hmm. Uh, so believe it or not, there were all kinds of question marks in the beginning, even including what kind of angles can we handle on the curves on the streets? What kind of gauge should we use? Uh, many kind of embarrassing derailments and some passengers went, um, you know, hand over bottom on a few of the early trips, but a uh, great, great streetcar city from literally a decade, over a decade before the Civil War even began. It's interesting. You know, we all associate cable cars with San Francisco, and it seems like cable cars weren't as big of a thing here. Like, we got in with electric streetcars and kind of skipped that stage. But there were some places where um, they had those around town. What would you say was sort of the heyday of streetcars or electric streetcars or, you know, whichever kind of mass cars we're using to get around town. As you mentioned, we definitely went through a series going from the animal drawn to the electric and finally to the third rail system where the the power was underground. Um, The real... The biggest variety of operators and equipment used was, I would say, in the from the late 1880s until about 1910, a number of different streetcar operators were operating here in town. In fact, at one point, there were 18 different companies operating streetcar lines here in St. Louis. Most of us are more familiar with the final successor to all that, St. Louis Public Service. And of course, they were running um, you know, with the third rail and so forth. That was in part because St. Louis Public Service had taken over all those companies, but they were also supported by the local manufacturers we had here. In some ways, they were building not just not only for you know national operators across the country, but specifically for what St. Louis needed here in its operations. And these streetcars, it's interesting. I mentioned these photos earlier. I can't get over some of these early St. Louis photos you have. You have some photos where trolleys are kind of awkwardly sharing the road with horses and buggies. Like we think of these eras as being distinct. These eras bled over into each other. Did that sometimes cause problems when they're trying to share the roads? That definitely did cause problems. And there were some photographs of all three, i.e. horse-drawn, streetcar, and automobile, gas-powered vehicles. Sounds like a mess. Uh, a hot mess. Um, yes, and, uh, you know, applause all over to St. Louis City and its planning for this. Um, certainly, they're the most congested areas were in the city, but there were streetcar lines operating all throughout uh, mm-hmm. St. Louis County. So um, there were certainly issues. And as we all know, the automobile won, uh, but there were some uh, little disasters on uh, at intersections getting there. Yeah, this was not an easy victory. There were some no. casualties along <laughs> yes, the way. Yes, certainly. <laughs> I'm going to go to the phone lines. We have a lot of rail enthusiasts, unsurprisingly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is this is kind of a topic. I feel like people who love railroads love railroads. Yes. <laughs> um, let's go to Leo, who's calling from Clayton. Um, Leo, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Oh, wow. My question is, um, why did St. Louis abandon Union Station and uh, subsequently turn it into a mall and built a whole other Amtrak station? Seems like a, a strange, wasted piece of infrastructure. Leo, that's a great question. Molly, do you feel up for answering that? I, I have to agree. A portion of this book, a good portion of it, um, as it should, covers St. Louis Union Station and the incredible piece of architecture that was given to us by the Terminal Railroad Association and by its amazing architect, Theodore Link. 
If you look at passenger railroading in the larger national sense as the individual class one railroads gave up passenger service in the post uh, here are the great interstate um, highways for us to drive in those um, post World War II years as so many of us went to automobiles and left the railroads behind for our own personal travel. Is those class one railroads are saying, hey, we're not making any money off the passenger service. Amtrak was created to absorb and uh, sort of on a much smaller scale, continue to operate those passenger trains under its own name. They're just weren't the um, funding sources available to maintain and even keep open the large, large stations. St. Louis Union Station was not the only major metropolitan railroad station that suffered the fate our own Union Station did. People just weren't traveling by rail. Amtrak certainly did not have the money to take care of that building, let alone staff it and keep it open. Ours is certainly not, again, the only union station that was converted over to retail use, um, event use, and so forth. If you look all over the country, there are relatively few of the uh, really significant pre-war passenger stations still operating. Ours fell victim to people moving over to their automobiles, Amtrak not really having any money, and I'll come right out and say it, uh, poor management at the upper levels by Amtrak. Hmm. Leo, thank you for that question. That was a, a great question. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ken is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Ken, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for joining hey, us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so my question, I have sort of like this concept or vision that as the, this, this ultra, ultra high speed um, rail starts to take shape, and I know they talked about a potential line between Casey and St. Louis, but to literally designate St. Louis as a logical hub for that and start to start the actual, you know, planning process, development process for that, because it's going to happen sooner or later, get out in front of it. Ken, thank you for that thought. Um, Molly, I'm curious, do you think we could see a big rail resurgence and that St. Louis could do what it failed to do the last time and we could, like, proactively get in front of other possible competitors to be a hub? I would love, love to see that. To be honest, I have strong reservations about that happening, in part because let's use St. Louis to Kansas City as our example. Union Pacific, great, great railroad. They own the tracks now in operation between those two cities. The money they make off their cargo shipments, their you know foremost revenue gainer, will always, always, always win. Mm-hmm. They sideline, you know, they'll shove Amtrak on a siding every opportunity they get to run everything from a, uh, you know, mainline heavy coal hauler coming out of Wyoming to their local daily runs, servicing the local industries and so forth. I would almost think a separate system of rail would need to be built, an entirely new um, you know, unit with the, all the high-speed components ranging from the welded rail itself to the concrete ties to, you know, the, the power supply and everything. It would be hard for me to envision acquiring the property necessary mm-hmm. for that because we know about the Katy, we know about the Rock Island, two other lines that did a good job of running from St. Louis to Kansas City. Of course, those former roadbeds are now, you know, 
popular kind of tourist trails uh, by bike and by passenger. Well, the, the Katy certainly is, and the Rock Island looks as though it's on its way to becoming such. I, I'd love to see it happen. I really have my doubts. I have this feeling that the mainline railroads have such a stranglehold over the Midwestern states that we'll see those high-speed operations only as we see them now on the coast. I can see you make a really good point here. And I hope you're wrong, just like you hope you're wrong. I do. I hope I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, we might not be able to have a high-speed rail or be a hub for that, but we do possibly have the loop trolley. Now, you talk briefly about this in your book, this sort of nostalgic effort to bring something back, to put streetcars back in the loop area. And as I mentioned earlier, there is this plan to possibly use $1.3 million of federal funds to try to revive this one more time. This has been a very very controversial topic in St. Louis. We asked on Twitter whether to put money to this project, and as of showtime, 75% said hell's no. Only 25% said, yeah, it's worth a try. So Molly Butterworth, in our in our final minute here, do you think there could be some way to bring a trolley or streetcar back, or has this era kind of closed and we should just enjoy reading about it in your book? Um, let me give, I hate to say this, a little bit of a wishy-washy answer to that. First off, I want to applaud Metro, uh, MetroLink and everything. We have a great interurban service here in St. Louis. I hope many of us listening and talking right now have utilized it at least to go down and see the cards, to make a quick trip to Lambert so we don't have to park the car you know, there at the airport. So we have a great system there. Unfortunately, our streets have been maintained and developed for automobiles now for close to a century. It would be really, really tough to bring interurban, i.e. vintage-looking streetcar systems back into operation on those streets that have already been developed so well. And with, you know, big kudos to Joe Edwards for all the amazing work he's done, especially related to preservation there along Del Mar. Um, It's tough when you're working on a highly developed street you've helped develop and uh, start off with tough equipment too. So the cars may have won, but you can still read about this era when that was not the case. It's a great nostalgic book, so much history in here. Molly Butterworth, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, really enjoyed it. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.